0: See you this evening. Uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, is where we find ourselves tonight, Sunday evening, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now. Just wave to them. They'll put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along, not just hearing the Word, but uh, seeing it with your own eyes as well, double the impact of it. We pick things up in uh, verse 30, and we remember last time we were together, and um, the, uh, the, uh, Jesus had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration, had been transfigured into his, his glory with three of the disciples, comes down from the Mount, probably Mount Hermon, and uh, into uh, the base of the Mount, and there is the boy that is uh, demon-possessed, and Jesus delivers the boy of his demon and then now we're told that then they departed from there from that place, and they passed through Galilee and Jesus didn't want anyone to know it, so he's trying to avoid being known at this uh, on this particular journey, so it doesn't produce a crowd and The reason that he doesn't want a crowd at this point is we're told in verse thirty one for he taught his disciples this was uh, individual time with the disciples. And he uses the time uh, to prepare them for what is coming next. He said, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. All of this was already in the works in the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders and so forth. It wouldn't be long before he'll be uh, crucified in terms of the chronology of, of the gospel. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So Jesus tries to prepare them for the coming uh, horror in their eyes of of the crucifixion and what is going to occur, to let them know a resurrection is going to be the final word uh, concerning his death upon the cross. But uh, still there, not understanding it. All of those events are going to take them completely by surprise, both His death, burial, uh, and His resurrection. And yet, uh, you, you can't fault uh, Jesus for not trying to prepare them ahead of time for uh, for what was coming. It really says a lot about um, His love for us and His care for us. And then He came to Capernaum, and Capernaum was the headquarters in the north, the Galilee region of His his uh, public ministry, and when he was in the uh, the house, uh, he was uh, asked the disciples, "What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road?" Uh, now, remember here the context of all of this is that Jesus has just told them that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified, and uh, and he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise again on the third day, and uh, and 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 what do they do with that information? Uh, they begin to enter into an argument over which one of them is going to be the greatest uh, in the kingdom. Uh, in the chapters we're looking at here, right here, the, the apostles don't come off uh, very well, but they're certainly a tremendous encouragement to us. Uh, never think that when God calls you to do something in His name, uh, that you're something spectacular when He does it. I mean, the apostles were, wow, sometimes you just go, what in the world? And, uh, and yet this is, uh, this is what He has to choose from in, in, in the world, including, including myself. So he asked, what was it you were uh, disputing about among yourselves on the road? And they kept silent. Nobody wanted to talk or answer the question. And then four, that's a reason word, on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Uh, th- the word disputed is worth noting. This was not a calm discussion. Uh, this was something bordering on an argument between the twelve over which one of them was going to be the greatest uh, next to Jesus in the kingdom of God. Hey, uh, just a quick show of hands. If any of you ever uh, been in an argument with another Christian or a group of Christians over which one of you uh, is going to be the greatest. Just a quick show of hands. Don't be embarrassed. Just don't be embarrassed. Okay. All right. For the uh, tape, uh, there were no hands th- uh, that were raised. So they're, they're on some pretty interesting territory, aren't they, uh, on this? How embarrassing. I mean, I, I've, I, I've done, I've, listen, I've had my fair share of doing dumb things that I uh, deeply regret, but I have never, ever argued, not even on a secular level, uh, concerning my greatness or what I think of my greatness and and where I think that I, I stand with other people. But this was, the, this was the argument that they legitimately had. I'm greater than you. No, I'm going to be greater than you. And praise the Lord for uh, the, the things that He doesn't um, have a... Uh, you know, a record of in terms of a recording. And so uh, they they didn't need to… he didn't need to hear them answer him to know what they had been disputing about. They knew and he knew. And so we're told in verse 35, he sat down. And when a rabbi, and Jesus was a rabbi, more than a rabbi, but he was certainly a rabbi, when a rabbi would sit in those days, Uh, that was to take the position of a teacher. So he is communicating to them in sitting that he now has something that formally that he wants to teach them out of this chapter in their life. And so he sat down and he called the twelve to him and he said to them, if anyone desires to be first, that is first in the kingdom of God, he shall be uh, last of all and the servant of all. And so the the way to greatness in the kingdom of God, they've got an argument over who's going to be the greatest. When he sat down and then took the position of a teacher and they gathered around, I don't doubt that some of them were thinking, oh, good, Jesus is finally going to tell them. But that's not what he has in mind at all. He's going to teach them on greatness, period. There's nothing wrong with desiring greatness in the kingdom of God. Would to God that every Christian desired to be great for the kingdom of God. But it is uh, never accomplished the way that the world achieves greatness. And greatness is achieved in the kingdom of God by uh, becoming a servant and uh, serving other people, taking the lowest position in, in serving other people. That's how to achieve greatness within, uh, within the kingdom, uh, kingdom of God. This, the whole thing that they're doing here is this, is this self-promotion and, uh, and, and this contention, this fighting uh, for position. This isn't just a, a curse in the world, and it is, but when that kind of thing, the Bible talks about it, uh, James does about selfish ambition and bitter envy, and, uh, and, the, and when you see within a, a kingdom environment, a church for instance, and you see that people are trying to advance themselves through selfish ambition, uh, through fighting for the, a top spot that they feel they are better than everyone else for. That is about, that is about the single worst cancer that can be introduced into any, any local fellowship. Uh, in 30-plus in years of, of being a pastor, when, when I see uh, this kind of, uh, of selfish ambition or this kind of wanting to reach the top by climbing over other people and looking at other people, not as something people to serve, but as just a means to my end to make myself great in some kind of a religious setting, um, that person in my mind gets sent to the back of the class for ever being, being given any kind of position of significance in terms of influence in other people's lives until that gets worked out in their heart between them and the Lord and they become a servant and willing to do anything that God calls them to do or any need that needs to be met. And, and then when that is in place, that's someone who can advance. And so Jesus speaks to them here, he who desires to, to be first shall be the last of all and servant of all. Gentlemen, you are going about it all the wrong way. Become the greatest servant to the other eleven and the greatest servant of the other eleven to everyone else that you meet in life and that's your path to greatness. It's not the way that you, you think that it is. And then Jesus, as he seated, he then took a, a little child and uh, set the little child in the midst of them. It's really a beautiful picture in, in your mind. And how comfortable children were with him, by the way. And when he had taken him, uh, a little boy, in his arms, he then said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not uh, not me, but him uh, who sent me. And and so he illustrates it here through a little child. In the uh, uh, Greek and Roman world, children were uh, very, very lightly esteemed in terms of significance or importance at all. And uh, so when Jesus takes and, and makes a little child his example and talks about becoming a servant not only of other adults, but becoming a servant of those that are considered to be the lowest and the most Uh, insignificant and the most powerless within the culture. Serve that group. Find that group. Serve them. And uh, that's how children were esteemed. That's the way to greatness. And he says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name. In other words, uh, you would treat a child or you would treat anyone that is, is classified in that way by the culture. Nobody looks to serve them. Nobody cares uh, about them. Seeking out that person and then serving them and then in serving them in Jesus' name, in, in serving them in the same way that we would serve Jesus. If this person was uh, was Jesus, uh, then uh, then and to treat them that way is is to receive Jesus as well. And and it is not only uh, reflects our attitude toward Jesus, but uh, but our attitude toward uh, the Father uh, as as well. Then in verse thirty eight, I think that John and John's a young man. Uh, probably the youngest of the apostles, uh, maybe in his late teens, and no, certainly only in his early 20s as uh, as he becomes a part of the apostles and is moving forward in these unbelievable, wonderful events in, in human history. And something about this um, taking the lowest spot and this kind of humility and this path to greatness, I think, um, convicts him in his heart, and he feels like he has something to confess to Jesus and how they had recently uh, defied and, and acted in, in, uh, against what Jesus had just described. And so he confesses, and, and his heart is so pure and all of this, and he said, "'Teacher, uh, we saw someone who does not follow us.'" Uh, casting out demons in your name, and we order, uh, we forbade him because he does not follow us, and that was the reason. So you imagine, here they are, they're out and about. Remember Jesus when he, uh, earlier in his ministry, he had sent out the seventy. Uh, to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, and so forth. So it wasn't just the apostles who had this authority and this power. Plus, you had other people who were uh, becoming Christians and disciples of Jesus, but all of them weren't following Him everywhere through the land. I mean, there lots of people, and all of them with a calling, and Jesus is the answer, and they've seen Him... And maybe in their own life, a, a demon has posi- been uh, de- delivered out of their body in Jesus' name. And now they, as a disciple of Jesus, go to others who are in that condition and casting out demons in Jesus' uh, name. And, and so this kind of thing was going on. They come upon someone who is, is, is doing this thing. And you can't cast out a demon except in Jesus' uh, name without authority. When somebody, as this man was, casting out a demon, he's doing it by the power of God. God's favor is upon his life. God is, is using him. And yet uh, the disciples uh, told him to stop, uh, forbade him from doing what he's doing. Uh, put yourself in the person who's demon-possessed and the family members that are around and, and the, the big 12 show up and they're going to stop, uh, you know, the deliverance that's going to occur. I mean, it, do, it doesn't look very good. And, and so they forbade him, uh, not for any good reason, but because he was not a part of their group. He wasn't a part of the Twelve. And uh, so we have uh, the first uh, hint of uh, denominationalism uh, in, in the New Testament here. And there is something uh, about us that, that by nature so often we view anyone who isn't a part of our group anyone who isn't a part of, of the Southern Baptists, or someone that isn't a part of, of uh, the Assembly of God, or part of this denomination or non-denomination, uh, because we belong to the, to the body of Christ and we, we come to the churches that we come to because uh, we hear God's voice there. We're able to worship the Lord there. So, we relate to Him. We're growing in our relationship with the Lord in that place. but everybody isn't exactly like us. And so there's other places where people go and, and they relate to God in that environment, and they grow in their relationship with the Lord in, in, that, in that environment. And so here they, here they are. They, they, uh, you're, you're not a part of our group, and, and there's a tendency to view other groups. If not with suspicion, then they're certainly less than us. And, uh, and it, it's called this sectarianism, and it's a dangerous thing. I, I will never forget the quote by G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great Bible teachers of the last century in, in England when he declared that, I have found that the more spiritual a man is, the less denominational he is. And that's the truth. The more we grow into the heart of Christ as he reveals himself here, uh, we will be thankful for every Christian who is serving the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit and faithful to His Word and trying to help people and advance the kingdom of God, even if they're not a part of, of our uh, our group. And, and so it's important for us as Christians, I mean, in terms of, of Calvary Chapel and Calvary Chapel of Modesto, we have views of, that we think are quite biblical related to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, related to the rapture and related to end times and related to a lot of, uh, of different things. And we hold those views because it's the best way we can understand the Scriptures in terms of the revelation related to them. And then we express, even as we have, our worship to the Lord in the way that, that we do, uh, not through some kind of a super-organized, deliberate plan where you know the, we go away for a week and strategize for the coming month related uh, to worship. But the worship that, that we engage in and the team that leads us in worship, our worship has the tone that it has because these are the people that are in our fellowship who have that gift, and God has raised them up in order to point us to God uh, in this way. But it can be very different in another environment. So we ought to have our convictions. Uh, Each fellowship will have its own personality. And the key is to believe what we believe and do what we do as best as we can in the light of the Scriptures, but not to gain an attitude of superiority or suspicion of others because they do something different. I'm not talking about uh, error. I'm not talking about hypocr- uh, 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 heresy. I'm not talking about anything like that. That's another thing just talking about like this man, he's empowered by God, God is using him, he's doing a good thing, and the kingdom is being uh, advanced. And so he said, we forbade him because he didn't follow us. And Jesus said, do not forbid him, Uh, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward uh, speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. And uh, he's not talking here about, you know, he's talking about a Christian service here. He's not talking about uh, salvation. It doesn't mean a person is… Uh, we can say, well, at least, uh, m- you know, my uncle, he doesn't believe in Christ, but he's not against me, so he must be f- uh, for us, and he's okay in terms of salvation. It's not a salvation context, it's talking uh, about, uh, about Christian service. If they're not against us, uh, then, uh, then uh, they are, they're on our side, uh, Jesus says, instructing the twelve. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, uh, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means... Uh, uh, lose his reward. And so this, this beautiful, beautiful instruction on uh, uh, you know, staying clear of this uh, sectarian uh, ism and uh, this idea of us four and no more. We're the only ones who really serve God or the only ones that God is, is really using. And then Jesus, while he's got a child in front of him, he begins to speak more broadly now. Uh, about children, and specifically about children who believe in Him. And He's not not just talking about little tiny children that are part of our Calvary Kids Club or our children's ministry tonight. He's talking about every single child of God, whether they're 115 years old or whether they're uh, six years old. Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones Uh, who believe in Me, talking about Christians, whatever their age. But that's how God views us, as His little ones. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble, that is, to stumble in their faith, He said it would be better for Him if a millstone were hung around His neck and He were thrown into the sea. Uh, Jesus said it would be better for a person to experience the most horrible physical death that a person could uh, o- almost ex- experience than to experience what they will experience as he goes on to talk in a moment about, uh, about hell and, and, and how he views uh, this attempt to stumble the faith of his children and, and of, uh, of, his, uh, of his people. He said, if your hand cuts, uh, causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands, uh, two hands to go into to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so the warning against anyone who would attempt to overthrow the faith of, of any of God's people and I think that examples of this are everywhere within our culture. Everywhere you see religious persecution against Christians for simply being Christians, and I don't care if that persecution is secular or it is religious. This passage refers, and the warning refers to that person. I think about in, in much of our higher and public education where people feel free Uh, to attack and undermine the faith of Christian in these environments and to bully Christians. This is a warning to that kind of person who endeavors to undermine the faith uh, of God's people. I certainly think about uh, those who uh, profit off of uh, pornography or they profit off of drug addiction. What kind of a horrible human being, can look at our fellow human beings and recognize the, the danger that, uh, that pornography and temptation that it represents to people and alcohol and drugs, and then to begin to uh, proliferate these things within a culture and within the world just so I can take other people into bondage into these things so that I can be rich in, in doing so. and and stumbling God's children as a result of this. There's going to be a terrible judgment for it. God does not say that when a child of God falls prey to these things that we are completely innocent of that. We're responsible for that because God calls us to and gives us the power to live a higher life. But but what Jesus is speaking about here is He's speaking about the fact that, yes, this thing goes on in the world all around us every single day, but there's going to literally be hell to pay for this one day. He sees the people that fall into sin, but more than the people that He sees falling into sin, He sees the people that are luring people. Into sin, in, into bondage, or luring them away from their foundation in Christ, or their uh, their faith in uh, in in Christ. You think of so much of the entertainment industry seems to be absolutely geared to undermine uh, biblical uh, mores and to undermine uh, biblical faith. This and it and it's not just the secular world; it's the religious world. Uh, this news that broke in Pennsylvania, how? What do you do with that where you have these 300 priests over a period of decades and all we know about is the thousand that have come forward to declare how they have been violated by people who claim to represent Christ? And as a Protestant, we can look at it and say, well, it's just the Catholic. The system is broken. I mean, the, it's an unnatural thing that they're asking people to do. It's an environment that sets things up and accommodates this kind of thing. I, I know all of that. But it is still a system that in large part claims to represent Christ before the world. And what happened in Pennsylvania and what came out in that report, that's just one state that's just six districts in Pennsylvania. Wait till they start to uh, go into the rest of the country and to have the faith of these children overturned at the hands of the very people they ought to have been safest with in all of the world. And I say, God help me. I'm not meaning to talk down to people, but I want to be serious uh, about it and and how Awful this kind of thing is and how hard it can be for such a person to ever Differentiate in their mind one day that that was someone who claimed to represent God and then there is God himself and They are two entirely different categories and then to have their faith restored to them It's a serious business And in terms as Jesus makes it he can't use harsher language here than, than talking about how serious it is to undermine or overthrow or stumble the faith of any of his, his children. God help us. And he says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet and to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, and it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a little bit of a, a revelation related to hell, as Jesus knows it to be, that it is a place where the fire never goes out, and yet not even a worm dies in the midst of the flames. And when he talks here, the imagery here and the language that he uses, it's not the first time he's used it. He uses it the same imagery you might remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And he talks about this same thing, to to, uh, cut off the hand and cut off the foot and and pluck out the eye if necessary. And he's not declaring to do it uh, literally, because I can pluck out my eye, I can cut off my right hand, and I can cut off my right foot and still do all of these things. But the the eye and the the right hand and the right foot, these represented uh, what we value most in life, our strengths in life, what we think is most valuable to us. And he's saying that if you have to get rid of even the most valuable thing in your life, uh, if that's what is required so that you are safe not to overthrow the faith uh, or stumble one of my children, then get rid of it. If you, in other words, to the pornographer, if you are in this industry and you are making a billion dollars a year, I don't care. Get out of that industry. Burn down everything that you have created, because what is awaiting you in terms of what you've done? Or the university professor, whatever it might, might be. And, and no matter how valuable it is where we look and say, this is my livelihood, this is my identity, this is my power. And Jesus says, it stumbles the faith of my children. I don't care how valuable it is to you, get rid of it. A- at whatever expense to you, abandon it, leave it behind. And, 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 and the beautiful strength of the warning. But the warning isn't, is, it, is it only... Uh, to, uh, uh, to the world, though up to this point in what he's saying, it, it is to the world. But he declares in verse 49, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Everything is one day uh, going to be uh, judged and thoroughly uh, tested. And then for us as Christians here this, uh, this evening, he said, Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you uh, season it? Have salt within yourself and have peace with one another. In other words, be concerned about uh, one another. And so to, to, to be salt, and in that culture salt was a preservative. It was, a, it was a, um, something that was a protection against uh, corruption. So he tells us as Christians that we're to be salt. We're to be distinctive in the world. It is a, it is craziness to some, and, and it's commonly held by Christians today that somehow we are going to advance the kingdom of God in this world or reach people in this world by becoming like the world, by losing the savor of our salt, losing the sting of our, our holy lives or the sting of God's Word and compromise and compromise and compromise and compromise. I listened to a podcast this week about a famous pastor who has declared that uh, you know, that today we need to unhitch our wagon to the Old Testament. And if we want to reach this younger generation, in essence, there's so much that's embarrassing about God in the Old Testament that we'll never, uh, we'll never reach them unless we uh, uh, define ourselves completely independent of of the the old testament well that's great if you have to jettison the old testament in order to get a group of people uh, to give some consideration to god and and to follow and that's the path that you're going to take and you think that will satisfy them and you think that, that the world will ever be satisfied by compromise and that they won't then move into the New Testament and squawk now when you declare Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life and that no man comes to the Father but by me? Are you a rookie in this game? Have you just started serving the Lord? Don't you know people and the devil and the world better than that at this point? So that it's importance of being dis- distinctive and saltiness— is to be like Christ it is not to be some kind of a Christian nutcase that makes themselves uh, look odd in the world on purpose some of us are just odd period you keep doing that that's fine because it's you we just don't need to give it any extra effort uh, in our lives and and so it but it to be salty is to simply be like Christ it is to walk like him, it is to talk like him, it is to love like him, it is to process life like him. it is to speak uh like him into people 's lives and that that is the standard when he talks about saltiness here in terms uh to Christians in terms of overthrowing the faith of of god 's children uh then then that I think essentially one of the great things that he's talking about here is essentially another thing that's on steroids today in the body of Christ, and that is this absolute obsession with uh, liberties uh, as Christians. My liberties. I've got a liberty to do this and a liberty to do that and a liberty to do this and that, and, and, we give, and can give no thought to a brand-new Christian who can be stumbled by our practice, though we can give chapter and verse for our right to do that. And as Paul said, in terms of saltiness and being an influence for health in the body of Christ, where we put other Christians, their faith, their spiritual maturity, their growth, their spiritual safety, even above my liberties. And Paul said, if eating meat causes one of my brothers to stumble, meat offered unto idols, then I will never eat meat again. So it isn't just the world. It is for us as Christians to stop and really be sober about this and that our highest concern is the health of the body of Christ as a whole and to be salty in, in that regard and, and for us to have nothing within our lives that we would certainly deliberately do uh, knowing that this is the potential to, to, to to stumble somebody else uh, in their faith, and so he he, he addresses it related to the uh, uh, the world, but he also addresses it uh, related to uh, the, the the Christian as well. The importance of taking other people into account and, and putting all of that is much higher than uh, any self expression that uh, that or, or practice that I. I want to engage in. Then in chapter 10, Jesus arose from there and he came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes, so there you go. This is the language of uh, of Mark. Multitudes gathered. And so this is not just a multitude. This is a huge group of people gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught, uh, he taught them again. He he was teaching them uh, the word. So you see this great, great group of people. He is speaking to them uh, about God, teaching them the word of God. And uh, then the Pharisees. Uh, they came and they asked Him, in the midst of, uh, of all of this, they're going to hijack the meeting. It's really just awful. You talk about a dollar waiting on a dime. Uh, to, who in their right mind would interrupt Jesus while He's teaching and, and then claim to be God's man or be spiritual at all? But that's what they did. I mean, this is the level of arrogance and pride uh, that, that, that marked them. And they posed a question to Him, And the question that they posed is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? So we see that this is not an honest question that's being asked. They're not uh, uneducated about the issue and saying, okay, listen, we're divided on this. We're going to ask Jesus, and whatever Jesus tells us, that will be the authoritative uh, 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 position that we will have within our life. That's not what is going on here at, at all. When they come with this question, divorce and remarriage was as kind of controversial uh, a subject uh, uh, among God's people then as it was uh, today. and. And so they think, in those days there was as there is today, there was a liberal view and a conservative view related to divorce and remarriage on the basis of the law of Moses. And so there was a rabbi by the name of Shammai who was very conservative, as we'll see in a moment, in his interpretation of the law of Moses. The law of Moses allowed divorce, but it allowed divorce. It allowed divorce for if the husband found uncleanness within his wife, but he could not divorce her without a writing of of divorcement. And and so uh, he uh, Shammai, in a conservative view, he said the definition of uncleanness. If we understand the heart of God properly, it, it must speak to sexually uh, sexual immorality or adultery. That the law of Moses allows for divorce on the basis of sexual immorality. But there was also a rabbi by the name of Hillel, who was very, very liberal in his views, and he chose to interpret uh, the uncleanness that a man might find in his wife as to mean anything. If her personality changed, if her looks changed, certainly if she could not provide him with with a son, uh, if he just didn't like her anymore, then under Hillel's interpretation, you could divorce her. And as you might imagine, Hillel's uh, interpretation became the most popular interpretation at the time uh, in, in the land. But people were divided over the issue, and so they're having trouble trying to dent pe- uh, Jesus' popularity among the people, so now they're going to pose controversial questions to him so that no matter what side he takes, he will alienate, uh, alienate some portion of his followers. This is the test. This is the uh, the groundwork. And Jesus answered, and He said to them, "Uh, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted the man uh, to write a certificate of divorce uh, and to dismiss her. And it was true that uh, the law of Moses in terms of divorce, it it gave more uh, attention and detail and definition to how the divorce was supposed to be uh, 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 entered into and honored as opposed to giving absolute clarity for the reasons for uh, divorce and uh, and so they looked at it and they said well because god did not want people uh, just ending up marrying and divorcing and marrying and divorcing on the word of their brother-in-law Or because they wake up one morning and they say, I divorced you, and then in five minutes they marry her over here, and now she's uh, living with him, or not marrying at all. So the writing of divorcement uh, meant people had to stop to realize this is a serious thing that is happening in the eyes of God, and, 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 uh, and, and, it, and there's parameters on this. You just don't do this willy-nilly and then move on on with your life. I have no idea what willy-nilly means, but uh, somebody said it when I was growing up and it's kind of stuck. So, I think it's a good thing uh, to, in order to illustrate the, the point. And so they take Jesus back to the law of Moses. And they said, listen, Jesus said, what, what did Moses uh, command you? And they said, well, Moses said we could uh, divorce our wives, but you had to give her a writing of, of divorcement. There had to be an official aspect uh, to it. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, uh, Moses wrote, this, uh, wrote you this uh, precept. Uh, and, and then Jesus says, but from the beginning, and Jesus says, now he does not go back to the law of Moses. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 in in terms of, you want my definition, you want my understanding uh, of of divorce and marriage and what marriage is supposed to be. He said, I'm not going back to the law of Moses. That's not the ideal. I'm going back to Genesis 1. And he said, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And so uh, marriage, uh, as God uh, instituted it, is to be one man, one woman, and as we'll see in a a moment, for life. That is the standard uh, for marriage. And, uh, And I think it's important even to be reminded as Is uh, Christians today that the institution of marriage is God's institution it does not have its origin in man can you imagine any group of men fallen and carnal as we are in human history coming together and saying let's establish an institution that limits us to one woman our entire life You must have a very high view of men and i don't think you do i'm hearing some giggles here in the in the room i certainly don't have that high of a a view of men there's no way a a man may choose to live that way himself but to set it up as an institution and put those kind of boundaries on himself no this exists in human history because it's an institution of god one man one woman uh, for life And this is why it is so goofy today, these attempts now uh, to redefine marriage and to make it fit whatever we want it to make to fit. It is absolute insanity to think that fallen man, and especially to accommodate sin, can improve upon God's institution of marriage. And then it is absolute arrogance on the part of anyone to think that uh, I have a right to do that. Listen, I'm not a homosexual. I don't have homosexual tendencies. I've got a lot of other problems, so don't think that I'm perfect. Everybody deals with the sins that we deal with. But but when we become a Christian, listen, we all have to... Put away and repent of the sins that would dominate our lives and that once did dominate our lives in order to follow the lord but before i ever became a christian it would never dawn on me to look and then come approach christ and approach the god of the bible and say listen i'm going i'm going to come to you now uh, but now i'm going to demand that you accommodate my sin rather than the other way around. It'd be like, who do I think that I am that I would think I could be smarter than God on any issue? And you look at marriage, and you look at the family unit that comes out of marriage, it is the the foundation and the cornerstone of civilization. And we are destroying God's institution of marriage in our culture And the ramifications, if the Lord tarries, we can't even believe where this is going to go in terms of the unraveling and the destabilizing of the culture. It's already happened. And and so this, Jesus takes him back all the way to Genesis uh, uh, chapter uh, 1. And he said in verse 9, in, in conclusion of, of what he was declaring there, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So they're expecting him to say, well, listen, I kind of side with Shammai on this or Hillel on this issue, and they can divide him. They had no idea he was going to come up, he's going to take them all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 in front of this multitude uh, of people. But that's exactly uh, where he took it in terms of of marriage. In other words, he emphasizes marriage. He's not emphasizing divorce in his answer. It's in in any counseling session through the years where someone has come into my office, some couple and even some individual and wants to talk with me about divorce. I never talk with them about divorce. I won't talk about divorce until we talk about marriage and your marriage and, and what God has to say about that and, 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 and uh, how your marriage can be saved and how it can be uh, salvaged and what, what you can offer or I can offer in the situation to make it what, uh, what, what it should be. And so Jesus goes all the way back there and, and, he, and He's saying, I, I want to talk about marriage and what it was intended to be and if people understand it and he's talking now about god's people if god's people understand what god intended marriage to be the commitment that we're entering into when we do marry then we don't have to have this question so much about uh divorce and about remarriage and so he makes this statement and uh and then in the, in the house as he then at some point wraps up his teaching and, and enters into the house there, uh, then his, his disciples, uh, they, I think they were as shocked as the religious leaders to what Jesus was, was saying here in, in all of this. They got into the house and they asked him about the same matter. Jesus, what, 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 uh, tell me a little more about what you told them out there. And so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And uh, if they thought uh, he was going to back off from what he said to the multitude in private to them, they were sadly mistaken. Now, one of the things that's very important so, so that we don't misunderstand in verses 11 and 12, and I have no interest in explaining away... Uh, anything that Jesus says, but for clarification. Uh, This particular incident in Jesus' life and in his ministry, there's greater detail given to us concerning this event in Matthew's gospel. And we know in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said uh, he spoke about uh, the divorce, except in the case of sexual immorality. And so Jesus does declare that as a result of sexual immorality, uh, there is room, biblical room, for divorce on that and then for remarriage. We know as we go into the New Testament when Paul in uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about a Christian being married to a non-believer. And then the non-believer no longer wants to bear with them because of their Christian faith and they abandon them as a result of their faith. And Paul says, if you have been abandoned in your marriage and divorced as a result of it because of your faith, then you are free to remarry. So there are, there are grounds for a divorce or, or a marriage to end on, on biblical grounds uh, for a Christian in the New Testament. Certainly two of them would be sexual immorality and, and, uh, and, and abandonment. And, and I don't want to get in, any deeper into the details of all of this. If it's of interest to you, we talked about it I think in depth when uh, we were going through uh, Jesus in chronological order on Sunday mornings and we spent a whole Sunday, uh, Sunday morning on on the issue. Uh, I don't believe that what Jesus is teaching here in verses 11 and 12, uh, that if a Christian uh, divorces another Christian for unbiblical grounds and then remarries, uh, as some people believe that now they're, they are committing uh, now uh, habitual and unending adultery, and the Bible says that no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God, and so they've lost their salvation. Uh, the uh, to hold that view, in, in my opinion, is to disregard an awful lot about what the rest of the scriptures have to say. Uh, you, the, the, if if. if a a person has remarried in violation of God's standard as a Christian, what are they going to do? Are they going to divorce their new wife and now violate again in order to uh, not marry again? And oftentimes the former spouse is already remarried, even if there were no grounds for divorce. What Jesus teaches about divorce and remarriage is very clear. Uh, What gets complicated is the mess that we make of it in our own lives. And so how to rightly apply it to, to the situation. But if you look at it and you say, "Listen, somebody has an unbiblical divorce as a Christian, and, and in light of this, uh, they're living a life of adultery, and because no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God, they're not uh, going to, uh, to enter into heaven." To me, that makes that makes divorce and remarriage an unpardonable sin. There is no way for them now uh, to get out from under that sin and receive uh, God's forgiveness in that interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. And there's only one unforgivable sin in all of the universe, and that is a lifelong rejection of Jesus Christ as my Savior. And, and so that's not what he's uh, talking about. If you are in, those are your shoes in terms of uh, of your Christian life. Uh, that's that's not what he's he's declaring you to be. Your salvation is not in play in any way related to all of this. What it does do, this passage, the one point I want to pull out of it. You say you've already made four points. I know. So one more point I want to bring out of this is that of all of the people in the whole wide world, no group of people should have a higher view of marriage than Christians. Look at the strength of the words that Jesus has spoken here, and it ought to be a sobering thing for us in deciding who we are going to marry and then when we make that commitment of one man one woman for life to stay in that commitment can there be problems absolutely there can be problems but you married him or her you're you were googoo eyed at one time there was something about him that you loved at one time and that same something and that same person is there somewhere buried under who knows what in terms of the hardness of heart on one or both parties. And so, what do we do? We work through those problems and then salvage uh, the marriage and hold on to the marriage. But God doesn't allow this, uh, Jesus doesn't want this uh, fast in and out of marriages and all uh, to, to, mark, uh, to mark his people. It's interesting, I read a Barna report. He's the guy that does polling among Christians, and it's, a, it's very accurate polling. But it, it was uh, horrifying to me in this regard. And, and he talked uh, uh, about the divorce rate among uh, those who uh, identify themselves as Christians and conservative Christians, and the divorce rate is very, very high. And, uh, and he talks, talked about the fact that among Christians, in comparison to all other non-Christian religions in the world. Talking about Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, other religions that aren't, you're not even indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The, the, these are not the path to God. There is no relationship with God on them. And yet, their respect for marriage and their divorce rate is far lower than the divorce rate of Christians in the United States of America. And I think that what we have to think about, and I talk about, again, as a pastor for 30-plus years, I've seen more of this than I ever want to see where Christians just, they follow the, uh, uh, the Hillel version. I, I just don't like her anymore. We're just not compatible uh, anymore. We've grown apart now, and, and this, this casual kind of divorcing, and God will forgive me, and it'll all be okay, and I'll remarry, and I'll leave church for a time because, of course, they're going to be upset about that, and I'll reintroduce a little bit bit later as if, as Christians... Our lives, when we claim to be Christians, do not represent the Lord. They do. When we declare ourselves to be Christians, and we uh, uh, call ourselves and identify ourselves as followers of the Lord Jesus, that means that the entire rest of the world assumes that they are seeing a proper representation of Christianity in our lives. And when they see this level of divorce and remarriage, this low view of marriage in the body of Christ, then they conclude that that is Jesus' attitude as well. And it is not His attitude, as we see in the passage And yet people then come to conclusions about him that are completely inaccurate. Once we become a Christian, we no longer solely or supremely represent our own will or ourselves anymore. We are here to represent the body of Christ and to represent Christ so people can see accurately what Jesus taught and what Christianity uh, is. And and to be sober about that responsibility, and to take that sobriety into our marriages as well, and staying within our keeping our marriages within the boundaries that Jesus describes here, which are stricter than even the law of Moses. I remember hearing a story many years ago, and it was talking it was talking about uh, two young women. And they were missionaries, and they had gone to uh, South America a, in order uh, to uh, reach a particular South American city. And they came into the uh, to that city, and they obviously, in the in the illustration, was given uh, uh, by one of the women speaking to the fact that it's important to have some cross-cultural training uh, before you go to a new culture. In, in order to represent the Lord, and so these two young women, zealous, on fire for the Lord, they go uh, to this city, and uh, and and now they want to reach it, and they're trying to reach the city with the gospel. But every morning when they would wake up, they would go out onto their kind of outside uh, patio, raised patio, whatever that's called, veranda. I don't know what it is, but you, how many? You know what I'm talking about, right? So, like a second story, and they're out on their, they're having their quiet times and they're drinking their coffee. They did it for a year until finally somebody came up to them and said, Do you know why nobody is listening to you in this city? Because only the prostitutes go out on the veranda and drink their coffee in the morning. They all think you're prostitutes. And, uh, but that, that realization, that people are watching and assuming that what they're seeing in us represents Christianity and, and, and how it can become a stumbling block to other people coming to faith. So imagine you put yourself in an Islamic country, put yourself in a country that is do- predominantly Hindu or predominantly uh, uh, Buddhist or even predominantly secular. And, uh, and here are Christians now trying to come into that culture and break through in that culture now uh, for Christ. And the leaders of that country looking and saying, we look at the country that you're coming from, the country that most identifies as a Christian country in the whole world, and we see the divorce rate among Christians is 50%. If what you believe gets that kind of traction in this country with all of the problems we already have, and you dismantle the family unit on that level, and we end up with a divorce rate of 50%, our country will not survive. We don't want you. Don't come here. The point I'm trying to make is it's a serious thing to be a Christian, and we represent the Lord in claiming to be one. And it's important that we represent Him well. And to represent Him not now in the marriages that have crashed and burned and we have no more control over them in our lives, but in the marriages that we're in today, that we leave this place tonight and this is the standard. Not because it's easiest for me, or not because I'm having the time of my life with this man or this woman, but because there's something more important in life than uh, me having fun or finding fulfillment in some area of my life, and that is properly representing Christ before the world. And I I say all of this, and I camp here uh, tonight in part because I can't change the world, I've got only my own marriage to, uh, to try and represent this in, but you have yours as well. And for us as a fellowship, to, to, if we've lowered the bar in any way, where it's just like another Christian, oh, there's another divorce, they divorced, and they remarried, and oh, well, okay, no big deal. And to realize that if that no longer impacts us, we may not be able to change their minds and we can't go put them in a headlock or whatever, but it should never influence our attitude about the seriousness of this, this, uh, this, this institution. And for this to be the, the, the fact that, that marriage is uh, viewed highly uh, by this church and by this congregation uh, as far as our our influence uh, uh, might go. it is so important that 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 be, uh, be the case and that it be the case within, again within our marriages that are uh, in in the room tonight. The ramifications are in all kinds of of directions, but this i, I can 't if I put myself in jesus 's shoes in heaven right now, and he has taught this, and this is in his Bible, the strength of these words, and then to look in general at the body of Christ in the United States of America, where this stuff just goes on without hardly a second thought, and how it must absolutely break his heart over how badly he is being misrepresented in just this single area alone. It's an important uh, word. So many things that we've looked at tonight are so sobering. Uh, God help us that, that we don't come to the Word and try and have it conform to our sin or our frailties or our, our fallenness but to ask the Holy Spirit to raise our lives up as Christians to the standard of this wonderful book and then to experience the communion with God that happens, even in difficult marriages or circumstances, uh, when we do that. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we feel like we've um, experienced the saltiness of Your Word tonight in our own lives, and it feels good, Lord. It feels good not to lose our savor and to lose our distinctiveness, and, and it happens so subtly and it happens so quickly, and we thank You, Jesus, for the power of Your teaching and the power of Your stands, the wisdom of it, the love that is behind it, Lord. The way that it represents and glorifies you which is our only real concern in this life and we thank you for the wide variety of things that your spirit has spoken into our lives tonight through your word and we bless you for this time of worship this evening in in song and this time of worship tonight in your word we pray for you to anoint us now and uh, continue the conversation that's begun through Your Word in each of our hearts, any f- ends that are loose or open-ended, that we wouldn't go to sleep tonight until those things are tied up, Lord, and they're tied up Your way. And we ask for Your blessing the coming week as we go all literally all over the state and, and, and all over the world in the coming week. And, and we pray, Lord, that You would be with us and that You would use us to... Uh, glorify you and to uh, have through our lives manifest the presence of your kingdom and your Holy Spirit in every environment that we go in. We thank you for the privilege of being a Christian, of knowing you, of following you. And Jesus, we thank you for the price that you were willing to pay to make it so. And we pray all these things and we thank you in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.